He is risen. Three simple words spoken 2,000 years ago to a a group of, of terrified and grieving women. Words that have forever changed the course of human history. He is risen. Three powerful words that provide authority to what has been recorded in God's word and what is subsequently proclaimed from this platform. He's risen. Three life-altering words that, that give us hope and comfort and stability in a world filled with, with chaos. He is risen. Three critically essential words upon which the entirety of Christianity rises or falls. Those words declare just as the sun began to to peak over the Israeli horizon on the early morning of Sunday, April 23rd, 33 AD, make all of the difference in the world and as such, They should drive all that we do and all that we are as Christians. Those three words, he is risen, are the fulfillment of the greatest prophecy made by the greatest prophet who has ever or will ever walk the face of the planet. And I want to show you that this morning. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to go to an unusual place on Resurrection Sunday. We're going to go to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the tables around the the room. Please feel free to stand up and get one or ask one of your neighbors to pass one down to you. They'll be happy to do that. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we want you to have one. Please take that that with you. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And if you are able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, I would ask that you would do so. Brothers and sisters, this is the glorious word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, 
And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. What we just read is uh, something that's called the the transfiguration. It was a, a key event in the life of Jesus, which occurred during the second year of his three-year ministry. Just days early, earlier before this had occurred, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you think that I am? To which Peter, who was the, the de facto uh, leader of the disciples, looks at Jesus and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And after praising Peter for answering correctly, Jesus completely rocks Peter and his fellow disciples' minds by telling them that that he is going to to suffer greatly, that he's ultimately going to be uh, rejected by the Jewish religious leaders of that day. And not only are they going to reject him, but they are ultimately going to kill him. And then in three days, he's going to be raised to life again. And it was beyond anything that that Jesus' disciples could possibly have ever fathomed. I mean, how could Jesus possibly die? Didn't he just affirm to Peter that he is Lord, the Son of God? How can God die? And knowing that this revelation had rattled his disciples to the core, Jesus gathers his his three closest friends. He grabs Peter, James, and John. He leads them to the top of a mountain. And when they arrive, something amazing happens. This earthly Jesus that the disciples had, had become so familiar with gives them a glimpse of his deity. He's transformed before their very eyes. His his clothes become radiant, intensely white beyond human description. But that's not all that happens. Alongside of Jesus appear two heavenly visitors. Moses, the one to whom God gave the law, and Elijah, the great prophet of the Old Testament. And Peter, James, and John, they're, they're, they're spellbound by what is is occurring. They don't know what to say. And then without warning, it's over. And the three astonished disciples are left there with Jesus. And as they make their way down the mountain, Jesus commands them to keep everything that has just happened to themselves until he has risen from the dead. And this would be the second time that Jesus spoke of his impending suffering, death, and resurrection. And I want you to look at how the disciples responded. It says, so they kept the matter to themselves. They did what Jesus told them, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. It isn't that how it goes with Jesus. He's so much more than anything that we can possibly understand. His plans and purposes are are not easy to comprehend, especially when we try to use earthly logic to figure them out. With Jesus, less is more. And sacrifice brings gain. And weakness becomes greatness. And death leads to life. And that's also contrary to our human experience. And if there's one thing more than anything else that is contrary to our human experience, it is someone being raised from the dead. That just simply doesn't happen. 
over the course of the last several months, uh, myself and the, the members of our staff, we've had the, 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 the great honor to be able to, to minister to, to a number of families uh, in our church who have lost loved ones. And, and right in front of, of, of this podium, there, there sits a casket. And in that casket is, is, is the dead body of a loved one. And not a single one of us ever considered that that body is going to rise. It's so contrary to, to our experience, to, to th- let alone think that that body is going to be laid in a tomb for three days and then come out by itself. It is contrary to what we understand. But that is exactly what Jesus predicted. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I'm going to be killed and in three days I am going to be raised back to life. And with that, Jesus drew a line in the sand. He said, this is what's going to happen. It was so so much greater than anything that we could imagine. Jesus wasn't simply declaring, I'm going to win the Powerball. And Jesus wasn't placing an $85,000 bet with a Las Vegas sports book because he was supremely confident that Tiger was going to win the Masters again. And Jesus wasn't coming there and foretelling who the next president of the United States was going to be. Those predictions are child's play compared to what Jesus was predicting. Jesus was declaring that he was going to conquer sin and death, that he was going to be laid in the tomb and three days be raised back to life. And if that didn't happen, if Jesus' body remained in the tomb, or if it was stolen by his disciples to, to make it look like he raised from the dead, or if he didn't really die on the cross and they buried him while he was still alive, and somehow he managed to rip all the grave clothes off of himself and pull back the stone and, and appear alive, if anything short of complete bodily resurrection occurred, then Jesus is a fraud. And Christianity is a joke. And the Bible testifies to that very fact in 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Brothers and sisters, even the Bible testifies to the fact that the entirety of our Christian faith rises and falls on whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead as he predicted he would be. No resurrection, no Christianity. No empty tomb, no forgiveness of sin, no salvation. And all of this brings us to an aspect of Jesus that few of us ever really consider. What Peter, James, and John experienced that day as they were coming down the the mountain from the transfiguration, was a role that Jesus plays. Some would would call it an, an office that Jesus holds that many people simply don't think about. It is the role of prophet. 
and is one of three roles or three offices that Jesus holds. And over the course of, of the last week, we've been talking about these three offices. Last weekend, uh, Steve Bateman helped us understand that Jesus is king, that he is the eternal heavenly king that rules with perfect justice and, and righteousness and equity and who rules in a way that does not allow sin to, to overtake us. And we pretty much get that. It's easy to see Jesus as king, sitting on the throne of heaven, uh, engaging with the the affairs of of the the nations, ensuring that his plans and his purposes are accomplished, protecting us, his children, from the consequences of sin and evil. It's easy to see Jesus as that. But Jesus isn't just king. On Friday evening, Good Friday, just two nights ago, uh, Pastor Ben helped us see that, that Jesus is, is also the great priest, the one who intercedes on our behalf with God the Father, the one who offered himself up as an eternal sacrifice for our sin. And we pretty much get that too. Because when people are first exposed to Jesus, it's, it's the priestly aspect that, that people come to see that people learn that he offered him up as a sacrifice, offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross so that we might spend eternity with God in heaven. Uh, they understand that he intercedes with God the Father on our behalf. We get all of that. It makes sense. But what I want to help us understand this morning is that Jesus is also prophet. Now, prophets are people who have been called by God to speak for God. And you and I don't typically talk a whole lot about prophets. And when we do talk about them, we're typically talking about false prophets. False prophets are people who say that they are speaking for God, but really are speaking for themselves. False prophets are people who say, God has told me this, that, or the other thing that's going to happen, and then it never, ever happens. And we see this in the Bible. There's false prophets all through the Bible. Jeremiah speaks of it. In Jeremiah 23, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesies to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come about you. Do you want to find a false prophet? Do you want to be able to see a false prophet? All you have to do is listen for those people who make bold predictions about your life or about the world, and those predictions, they never come true. Who tell you that you can disregard certain portions of God's word because they're no longer valid or no longer culturally relevant or or no longer popular or no longer enlightened or no longer comfortable and so that you can just disregard them and everything is going to be okay. 20th century theologian H. Richard Niebuhr famously described the false prophets of the social gospel by saying this, they proclaim and worship a God without wrath who brought men without sin 
into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And brothers and sisters, that's what many of today's false prophets who claim the name of Jesus offer. They offer to the world a God without wrath. And they do so by elevating God's love and minimizing, if not disregarding, God's wrath towards evil and sin. They, they declare that humanity is essentially without, is basically good and that, that without sin and that people by their very nature are good. They remove any form of judgment and replace it with moral relativism. What's right for you doesn't necessarily have to be right for me. And what's wrong for you doesn't necessarily have to be wrong for me. And as a result, each person becomes their own standard for right and wrong. And then they proudly declare, who are you to argue with what I believe is right and wrong? And ultimately, these false prophets, they provide Christ without a cross. Simply because in their worldview, sin is relative. And so there is no need for a God to die for our sin. But that wasn't Jesus. Jesus was a true prophet. And we know that because prophets, true prophets, they focus on three things. They point out sin, they call us to repentance, and then they proclaim forgiveness and pardon. And that's what I want to take the next few moments to just simply unpack with you this morning. You see, throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus time and time and time again dealing with sin. Let me show you just a few instances of that. In Luke chapter 5, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Yeah, here is Levi. Levi is a, is a Jew who has become a, a tax collector for the Romans. And that's the way that, that the Romans uh, collected their taxes. They, they didn't send Romans to collect taxes from the Jews because that would have been too difficult. Instead, they would recruit Jews to collect taxes for the Romans. And in order to get the Jews to, to basically betray their people, they would let them have a, 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 a higher cut, or not even a higher cut, they would let them put a surcharge on the tax that they could keep. So if, if your tax to the Romans was 1000 bucks a year, the tax collector would come and say, you, you owe 1200 bucks." And he would give a thousand bucks to the Romans and he would pocket the 200 bucks for himself. And so the ancient Jews, they, they hated the tax collectors. They, they saw them as, as sellouts. And so, so to a reader of this, Levi is not a godly person because he's not a godly person. He's a sinful person. Yet Jesus calls him 
and he leaves everything to follow him. And over time, Levi, he throws a party for Jesus. And he invites the only people that he knows. A bunch of other tax collectors and sinners. And so here's Jesus and Jesus' disciples surrounded by Levi and all of Levi's basically sinful friends. And this drives the, the religious leaders absolutely crazy. You got to remember, everything's done in, in public here. There's no like, you know, when you had a window in a house, the window was at, there was no glass. It was open. People would look in and be able to see what's going on. And so the religious leaders, they're looking at this and they say to Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice what Jesus doesn't do. This is very important. He doesn't defend the tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't look at the, at the Jewish leaders and say, oh no, these guys, are, they're, they're the good guys, you're the bad guys. He doesn't say these people are without sin. What Jesus actually does is he affirms the Pharisees' assessment of the people when he replies. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus is saying this, if I'm calling you to myself, if I'm drawing you to myself, there is one thing you can be confident of. You're a sinner. In 1982, when Jesus began to draw me to himself, Jesus was not drawing a godly person. He was drawing a filthy sinner. A person who dropped the F-bomb like there was no tomorrow. A person who, who, who looked at, at women in ways that should never have been looked at. A person who, who was all about himself and not about others. If Jesus is drawing you to himself, you can be confident that you're a sinner. And we know that living water is a very diverse family. And there are several things that we do have in common, and one of them is we're all a bunch of sinners. Every single one of us. Example number two. Uh, most of you are familiar with the, the the story, the parable of the prodigal son. It's a, a, a story that, that, that Jesus makes up uh, basically to, to show how much God loves those who, who are wayward and, and how he wants to draw them to himself. And uh, th this is a story, it's called a parable, a story with a purpose. And uh, in this story, there is a, a father, and the father has two sons. There's a, an older son, and there's a younger son. And the, the older son is faithful and obedient, and the younger son, well, the, the younger son is, is the younger son. And uh, he wants his own way. He wants to do things his own way. And so he, he comes to his father and says, you know, Dad, I, this place, it's, it's just a drag. You're pulling me down. I really don't like being around here. And the really cool thing about you being my dad is you got a lot of cash. And uh, you know, I know that you're going to die one day and I'm supposed to inherit that, but, but why don't you just give me 
the cash now so you can actually see me enjoy it rather than you be dead and not be able to see me do that. And amazingly, what? In the story, Jesus says that the dad gives the kid half of his inheritance. And then the young man leaves the, 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 the father and he leaves the older brother and uh, he goes out and, and he indulges himself in a, in a life of sin. And in this story, we see Jesus' perspective on sin. Look at verse 13 of chapter 15 of Luke. He says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Jesus, you know, the coolest thing about Jesus, well, there's lots of cool things about Jesus, but he calls things like he sees it. He doesn't hold back. What does he say? He says, what the son is doing is reckless and sinful. Jesus doesn't say, well, what the kid's doing, you know, may not be right for me, but it's right for him, so it's no big deal. No, Jesus comes along and says, look, this kid has squandered everything by living recklessly. But he's not done with dealing with the sin. Jesus continues the story. He tells us that things are going to end up very badly for the son, just as it does for any of us who decide that we want to live for the things of the world. And many of us have been there. Many of us know what a dead end that is. The son who had lived in the comfort and love and safety of his family's home, he traded all of that away for a life of sinful indulgence. And now he finds himself not only feeding pigs, which would have been an anathema to a Jew, but he's so hungry that he longs to eat the swill that the pigs are eating. You talk about hitting bottom. This guy, he's cratered. he's, He's created a new bottom. And it's this point the younger son comes to his senses and he begins a journey back to the father in order to repent. Now notice how Jesus deals with the son's repentance. Verse 21, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What this kid has done, Jesus tells us, is sin. And he finally recognizes it. And not only does he recognize his sin, but he finally understands that he hasn't just sinned against himself, but he sinned against his his earthly father and he sinned against the God of the universe. And by telling this parable, Jesus is helping us to see, folks, our sin doesn't just affect us. It affects everybody we love. It affects people we don't even know. Our sin, it it, it holds no prisoners. It's like a virus that is let loose that infects all of these people. Illustration number three, Jesus gives us. The woman caught in adultery. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. There is plenty of sin to go on in this passage here, folks. I mean, here, you, you've got this woman, and she is committing adultery, and she is caught in the act of adultery. Adultery was an action in the Old Testament that the penalty was to be stoned to death if you did it. And then you have the sin of the, rebel, or the religious leaders who are using her adultery in an effort to trap Jesus. The only sinner that you don't have in the picture is the other half of the adultery. Where's the guy at? Why has he not been drugged in front of all of these people? And so you have the sin of adultery, you have the sin of treachery, and you have the sin of injustice. And watch again, watch what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't give sin a pass. Instead, he deals with it straight up. He confronts the religious leaders for their sin of hypocrisy and injustice when he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And every one of them had to look at their own lives and see the sin in their own lives. And in humility, they streamed out of the temple. But he also confronts the sin of the woman when he says, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Now the obvious question in all of this is why all of this talk about sin on Resurrection Sunday? Well, folks, if we don't know that we're sick, we'll never seek a cure. And without the bad news, there is absolutely no reason for anyone to seek out the good news. You see, people don't come to faith in Jesus because they have high blood pressure and they want to solve it. People do not come to faith in Jesus because their life is devoid of purpose and meaning. They do all kinds of other things than come to faith in Jesus. And people don't come to faith in Jesus because they've lost their job and they're seeking out a new job. No, people come to faith in Jesus when they come to realize that we're sinners, that we have offended the God of the universe who is an unwaveringly just judge and who, because he is just, must punish sin. That, brothers and sisters is why people come to faith in Jesus. When people come to realize 
their sin and they're confronted with it and the consequences that flow from that sin, then is when they begin to pursue Jesus. And part of Jesus' prophetic role was to help you and to help me understand the depth of our sin and the precarious place that it has placed us in. And that is one of the most loving things that anyone can do for another person. Now secondly, not only does Jesus point out sin, he calls us to repentance. See, Jesus gives us a way that we can be free of sin, and that is through repentance. And when Jesus shows up on the scene in the beginning of Mark, we see Jesus talks about this very thing. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. This is the exact same message that Jesus told the Pharisees back in Luke 5 when they were fretting over the fact that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Back then, Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And what is he calling them to? Repentance. But what exactly is repentance? What, what, what does repentance actually look like? Well, first of all, let me tell you what repentance isn't, and then I'll tell you what it is. And at this point is where you want to get out a piece of paper and a pen. My email is mike at livingwatercc.com. This would be like heresy coming from the pulpit, all right? Repentance is not changed behavior. When we've been sleeping with our boyfriend or our girlfriend, and we decide that the right thing to do is to shut that down and actually begin to honor and respect them, that's not repentance. When we have been a jerk of a spouse, or a jerk of a parent, or a jerk of an employee, or a jerk of a boss, or whatever jerk that we're really good at being, and we decide that it's actually time to be kind to others, that is not repentance. You see, repentance is not a behavior change. Repentance is a heart and mind change that in the words of John Piper gives rise to new God-centered Christ-exalting behavior. You see, repentance, it's radical. It is a, a, a change towards God and towards others. Repentance occurs when our attitudes and our beliefs are changed so that they actually align with God. And it's from those attitude and heart changes that behavior change actually flows. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, spoke this as he was baptizing people. He told them, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. You see, the ancient Jews, they believed that their bloodline allegiance to, to Abraham is what ultimately saved them. 
And John the Baptist wanted them to understand that's not how it works. That being made right with God begins with repentance of our sin and ultimately culminates in faith in Jesus Christ. That true repentance changes our hearts and minds and then it changes our behavior and it causes us to bear fruit. And John gives some examples to the people. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. You see, once people recognized their sin and truly repented once their hearts and minds were changed towards the things of God, then and only then are they able to even ask the question about how does my life actually need to be changed? And you and I, folks, we get this. We know that behavior change isn't enough. Why do we know this? Because many of us have had kids who are not behaving the way that we want them to behave. Or many of us have been kids who have not behaved the way that our parents wanted us to behave. And so we know the difference between compliance and heart change. Compliance comes with a scowl. Compliance comes with a sour spirit. Compliance comes begrudgingly as if they were doing us a favor because we've asked them. That's compliance. You've got their behavior, you don't have their heart. But repentance, man, that's a completely different story. Repentance comes when someone's heart and mind changes. And then things become crazy different. Repentance comes with a smile, with a pleasant spirit, with joy, and ultimately with love. Repentance says, I'll do whatever you ask me to do, and I will not give you a hard time about it at all. Because I am so grateful that I'm being restored. And that's why repentance produces lasting, God-honoring, Christ-centered behavior change. Piper put it this way. Repenting means experiencing a change of mind that now sees God as true and beautiful and worthy of all of our praise and all of our obedience. And why is repentance so incredibly important? Jesus tells us in Luke 13. It says, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So what's going on here? Up in the, the, the northern part of, of, of Palestine, up in, in, in Galilee, some 60 or 70 miles north of the, the city of Jerusalem, the, 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 Jewy, or the, the Roman governor, Pilate, went to a worship service. 
And the people in the worship service, these, these godly Jews, they're, they're offering sacrifices. And Pilate slaughters them. And, and the way the ancient Jews looked at those things is that kind of stuff happens to people who deserve it. They've done something wrong. It would be like saying the, the, the same thing of, of the, the Muslims that were, were killed in, in Christchurch a, a couple weeks ago by those assailants that went in there and, and shot everybody up. It would be like, well, they deserved it. Or it would be like the, those Christians that only about 12 hours ago were sitting in a worship service just like this in Sri Lanka, and a guy set off a bomb and killed over 100 people and saying they deserved it. That's what these people are coming to, to ask Jesus. Like, what about those people? And look at how Jesus responds he asked them a rhetorical question. Do you think that there was something wrong with these people because they died in such a way? The obvious answer is what? No. Because they're basically, they're just at the wrong place at the wrong time. But then Jesus says this, I tell you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You see, Jesus wanted them to understand that they themselves and that you and I, we are just as sinful as anybody else. And we desperately need to be repent, to repent, to be restored to right relationship with God. Repentance is the fertile ground where faith takes root. And faith is what ultimately saves us. And our hearts and our minds are changed, then our actions ultimately are changed, folks. That's Jesus' prophetic message. And it brings us to the third and final action which Jesus executes as a prophet. Jesus proclaims forgiveness and pardon. Let me go back to the woman caught in adultery. Remember what Jesus said to her after her accusers had dropped their stones and left. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Those are words of pardon. Those are, those are words of, of grace. And even though the woman was a pawn in the evil intentions of the religious leaders, she still committed adultery. She still violated the Old Testament law. She still deserved to be stoned to death. But Jesus, he sets her free. And while that's a powerful scene of forgiveness, the most powerful scene of forgiveness of all occurred on that brutal cross of Calvary where Jesus took upon himself the penalty for your sin and mine. And as he is suffering unimaginable pain, he looks at his tormentors and he looks through time at you and me and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And with that, Jesus fulfills his role of prophet. He points out sin. He calls for repentance. And then he proclaims forgiveness and pardon, which we ultimately celebrate today. But if Jesus is to be the greatest of prophets. Then there is one thing that had to occur. And that one thing was the resurrection. Jesus predicted that he would die and be raised again. And if he couldn't deliver on that, folks, nothing else that he's done matters. 
And that's why we are gathered here today. Just when it appeared that Jesus was going to be proven as a false prophet in a long line of false prophets, just as Friday night gave way to Saturday, and Saturday night gave way to the early hours of Sunday morning, and his body had not left the tomb. It appeared that Jesus was not going to deliver on his promise that death would be swallowed up in victory on the third day. And as the women made their way to their tombs, expecting to anoint a dead body and weep over lost hopes, something incredible happened. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, and behold, there was an earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And from that point on, human history was never the same. He is risen, changes everything. No longer does death and sin get to write our lives' final chapter. No longer is hope fleeting and forgiveness elusive. No longer do we need to live for ourselves because life is just as good as it gets. We don't have to live like that anymore. You see, Jesus is alive, and because he's alive, forgiveness and mercy and grace are alive. That means no one is too far gone. No sin is too great. No failure is too catastrophic because he's risen. Because he's risen, guys and gals, we have hope. There is actually hope in this world that is so incredibly vindictive and judgmental and just cruel. Because he is risen, gives us hope. And that, brothers and sisters, that should transform everything. Many of you that are sitting in this room right now, you got all that I just talked about. You know the depth of your sin. You have cried out to Christ in repentance. You have received him in faith. Your name has been written in the book of life. But here's my challenge for you. Do you really live like that? Do you really live like that? Or is there something that's just more important? I'm here to tell you the very fact that your name and my name have been written in the book of life should transform everything that we do. No longer should, should we be a, a, an engineer that just makes parts. 
Is it good to be an engineer? Yes. Is it good to make parts? Yes. But what is the greater good? The greater good is to be an engineer who makes parts and he does it for the cause of the gospel. It's to be a a, a police officer who doesn't just protect our community, but he does it as a servant of the risen king. To be a business owner or a counselor or a teacher or a nurse or a sanitation worker or a a social security recipient. And, And that you don't just live for just living. But that everything about who Jesus is and what he's done and and what he's going to do flows from us. And all of a sudden we go into that workplace or into into that school or into that community and the love of Christ exudes from us. And people can't understand. That's how you and I are supposed to live. God's not calling most of you to be pastors or missionaries like that go to Ecuador or come up here and do this. He's calling you to be a missionary where you're at and to extol the name of Jesus. And that gives life great purpose. And you don't got to settle for this is as good as it gets. And there are those in this room and there are many who've not yet come to faith in Jesus. I pray today that you would receive what I had to share with an open heart. If we had to line up all the sinners in a row, I'd be standing in front of the line. You'd probably be way in the back because what you do probably doesn't even come close to what I do. So don't look and think, hey man, this guy is condemning me because I'm not. But I am here to tell you something. That there is a holy God and he is a just judge. And he has to, because of his very nature, punish sin. Somebody's got to pay for that sin that I committed. Someone's got to pay for that sin you committed. Someone is going to do it. And if you go and stand before him without Jesus, you're paying for that sin on your own. And I'm telling you, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. But if you come before him and you stand before him and you say, God, I'm guilty but you can't punish me because you've already punished him for my sins. That's what Christianity is about. Sin gets punished, but it's not us who get punished. Jesus is the one who got punished. That's the kind of love that he has for you. And I pray that you would begin to sense him drawing you to himself. And I can't make you a Christian I'm not going to have you put your heads down and raise your hands. I'm not going to have you stream to the front of the altar. I'm just not going to do that. But in your heart, in your heart, you will know. In your heart, you will recognize 
that you've been separated from the God of the universe and that he is lovingly drawing you to himself. And I pray that you would surrender. Fall on your face somewhere and cry out and say, God, I'm a sinner. I am unworthy of anything but death. Forgive my sin. And I'm trusting in the punishment that you placed on your son to save me. And that will make you a Christian and that will change the trajectory of your life. And from what I've seen, when people come to faith in Christ, things don't necessarily get better. It's a hard road. But it is a road filled with more joy and more hope and more security than anything this world has to offer. And I pray that one day, when someone asks you your testimony, you will say, well, on a Sunday morning in 2019, I went to this church called Living Water Community Church. And that there was some sweaty, balding Italian up there who was losing his mind. <laughs> and he told me about Jesus. And I believed. I pray that would be your testimony. We pray with me, Lord God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for these fine folks. And, and Lord, most of all, I thank you for the beauty of your gospel. And I pray, Father, that, that, that you will be faithful to your word, that you will draw people to yourself. And Lord, for those in this room who have yet to come to know you, I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would empower them to believe. And Lord, for those who are in this room who believe, I pray that you would empower us to live lives that are truly focused on you. That you would be our highest goal. That, that pleasing you, loving you, and loving others would be that which we live for as we, we serve as engineers or, or computer programmers or nurses or doctors or, or veterinarians or whatever. God, that we would live like that. Do that good work, Father. And it's through your Son's glorious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we prepare to close? <clears throat>